We recited the Sutta on Great Blessings, the Mangala Sutta tonight, which is always something to take back home uh, and to really look at it from time to time, since it is uh, largely for the household life and climbing a ladder of blessings towards ultimate blessings, which would be the attainment of what they call unshakable freedom. And there are many blessings before that. Dhamma and Buddhism is quite often misunderstood. Everybody is thought to be a monk. Everybody is thought to meditate, etc. But there's a wide range of benefits offered up by the, the genius of the Buddha for living in the life that most people live, and that is amongst families and jobs and dealing with all of the issues that entails with livelihood and money and all of these aspects of life. It's well to deeply contemplate this and see the where the Buddha directs one. All of you have come to actually a very late stage of the blessings to visit the monasteries, to listen to the Dhamma and to converse with that and then to practice the higher mind, practice the states of the higher mind. And of course, we've been on a single theme this week with loving-kindness. But loving-kindness, of course, all has these ramifications and subcategories that spiral out from it. So loving-kindness is not an isolated special feature of the path, but cannot really be separated from the path. And you'll notice that the first blessing is not to associate with the foolish. So let your imagination run back to... Anybody? Can you think of anybody who's foolish? Few, okay. But aside from those exterior fools, there's also the interior fool. And so loving kindness is a a way of not associating with the foolish, and that is within ourselves. So the most problematic fool is us. And there's an interesting word, and it occurs in the beginning of the Samadhi, the beginning of the eighth factor. It's a word, viveka, which means solitude. Turning away from association into solitude. And so that's interesting that they use it as, it's not a physical solitude, it's citta viveka, the solitude of the mind. But what is it dissociating itself from? The crowd, the inner crowd, there's a a host of voices within us, various types of personality structures that appear from time to time. When they get uh, extremely exaggerated, they become this multiple personality idea, but I think everybody knows that they have moods, and you're not always exactly the same person in different moods. So this is instead of having a, a linear series of unskillful personality experiences, which are the negative emotions, to isolate yourself, to remove yourself from this, to turn to the solitude, 
solitary company of your best friend, and that is you, when you're purified of ill will and the wish for harm from any other being and purified also from craving and desire. You can't really experience any degree of purified loving kindness and have any of those, either the aversion or desire. And so you have given yourself the second blessing, which is to associate with the wise. And it's all very fine to go and hang out with other people who are wise, and I highly recommend it. It can be very beneficial. But there's nobody like yourself when you're wise. That's the true taste of wisdom. That's what you hope to emulate. That's what you hope to get. Now, this is part of this famous sort of paradoxical conversation with Ananda. Ananda one day says to the Buddha, you know, I think half of the path is good companionship. And you think actually he's going to say, Ananda, what are you, how long have I been talking to you that it's all up to you? No, he says the opposite. He says, no, it's the whole path. Good companionship is the whole path. And then you think, wait a sec. <laughs> he's been on harping on this for <laughs> endless numbers of suttas, how <laughs> it's all personal effort and wisdom. And now he's saying good companionship is 100% of the path. He uses the word kalyana mitta, which is uh, to have a beautiful friend. But this is, uh, of course, the Buddha loves to make puzzles. He knows that it's going to stop you dead in your tracks. He knows that his words are for history as well. By the way, when you read these suttas, nobody else has to talk like the Buddha. As a monk, I don't have to talk like the Buddha with concern that every word I say is going to be parsed and examined for the next 5,000 years. So I'd better be careful. He's so eloquent, and he's humorous as well. I mean, I see that as humor. You know, he says that, and Ananda has to say, pardon? You know, <laughs> Ananda is also, I think he's carefully chosen. This was a later stage in the Buddha's life. He went through a few attendants, and then later in his life, he needed a new attendant. This is the an attendant monk, you know, the Upataka in Pali, in the Thai tradition called Upatak. So when he requested an attendant, several arahants stepped forth, fully enlightened monks, who were more than pleased to spend the rest of their lives taking care of the Buddha. But he did not choose them. He chose Ananda who was at that time a sotapanna, only the first stage of enlightenment. And it's interesting, why? The Buddha never does anything haphazardly. Why not arahants? Why take a sotapanna? I mean, why? He wouldn't have to explain everything to the arahants. Ananda just still missing something. And that's why he chose Ananda. Ananda, first of all, does have a great memory. He's foremost in memory. And he's going to ask questions. So the Buddha wants somebody around who asks questions. There's no point in having somebody around who knows the answers because he won't have an opportunity to leave a record behind. So he needs, this is a play, 
This is a play. You need that character there who is very good and has some partial understanding, but not full understanding. And so he asks these kind of questions. And the Buddha, as I say, he, he likes riddles because he also knows that humans like riddles and puzzles. He also knows that life is fundamentally a puzzle. And he's showing you how to ask puzzling questions and also how to answer them. And that, when he says Kalyanamitta, is the path. Now, that's where it often stops, and people quote that and stop there. But the sutta doesn't stop there. It goes on, and he explains that in the end, the Kalyana, the beautiful Mitta, by the way, Mitta is friend in Pali, but it's also the root of the word metta. Metta and mitta are the same word, basically. And profound friendship is the essence of loving kindness. Remember that the, the wish for the safety of others and the safety of yourself is the core issue. And that's what a friend is that just a friend truly wishes for your well being and safety. It's a little less gushy than the word love, but it's very noble, very close to this, to a very, very profound emotion. Kalyanamitta, beautiful love, (laughs) is the whole of the path. (laughs) You can play with the words. And, of course, that Kalyanamitta is something that you, when you see it externally from yourself, you start to imitate it. Humans learn at the school of example. They learn no other. We are imitative beings. We emulate that which we admire. And we eventually we internalize that which we admire. And that's why we need heroes. We learn from somebody who is good at something. We admire that. And then we try to cultivate that within ourselves. Incredible transference going on there. So Ananda is not fully awakened, but he's absolutely devoted to the Buddha. The Buddha is his Kalyanamitta, his beautiful friend. And eventually he's going to internalize Ananda. The whole of the path is the internalization of the beautiful qualities of the Dhamma. And then there's other puzzles. People come to see the Buddha, and then he offers puzzles, like he says, you cannot see the Buddha. Even when I stand in front of you, you cannot see the Buddha. Certainly not after death, but not even now. Because ultimately, the Buddha is not there to be an external factor. He's there as a an embodiment of internal factors, which if you ever want to see the Buddha, you're going to have to see the Dhamma. It's the only way you'll ever see the Buddha. So this is the tangled braid of these blessings. And you should not externalize them. You should also internalize them. And to realize that most of the problem with fools is when you're foolish, they're really not a problem except when you are sucked into it. 
how could they be a problem? The fools are not a problem for the Buddha because he's never foolish. It's just that we are pulled into our own folly by others who are unskillful. And so we want to dissociate ourselves from this. Whether they're exterior or interior, we want to be careful about these things. And the only wise and beautiful friends we're ever going to have, you cannot see them in this life. But you can if you find the beautiful in yourself as well. If you find metta, you will see the wise. You will have then associated. What is to associate? There's a beautiful saying, I think it's Confucius, that when we associate with, or properly, when we truly associate with others, we associate with their virtue. That's what we associate with. He's also examining this. What is it that we are associating with? Is it just two bodies in a room? (laughs) No, it's not two bodies. For some people it is. It's just bodies. But it's a realization that what you want to associate with in another person is their virtue and the beautiful qualities. And their beautiful qualities is this. If they have this capacity of loving kindness, if they don't have this loving kindness, well, how can they be wise? (laughs) If they're not concerned for your safety and the safety of all beings, what do you think you're going to learn from them? How are you going to be lifted up by their presence? And to have someone who you respect. So not to associate with the foolish, to associate with the wise. To honor those worthy of honor. That is a beautiful thing to encounter in your life. Is there somebody that you hold in high esteem? Of course, you're always safe when you hold the Buddha in high esteem. But it takes a while to figure out who the Buddha is. So lots of people have very foggy ideas about who the Buddha is. But anyway, if you can find somebody alive that you honor, that's a wonderful thing. And that's something you can bow to. Bowing really should be a special gesture of the body. It's a very, especially in the West, I think when you first come to uh, Buddhism, or uh, this is a strange thing. You know, people don't bow here. They shake the hand of even the queen. You shake the hand of the queen or the president, you know. Prime Minister, there's this idea of everybody's equal. So that's very nice. But I really want somebody that I respect to such a degree that I could actually bring myself to bow to. Because I hope there is something worth respecting. (laughs) It would be a shame if nobody was any more worthy than me. I really, I'm hoping somebody, at least is that when I bow towards the Buddha, I'm also bowing to my own possibilities. It's an aspiration. And the Buddha is saying very clearly, don't externalize me. It's ultimately you in the end that you bow your head to. But it's not the one that's present. It's the future potential that you have within you, you're actually honoring the full capacities of human potential. And who would have any problem bowing to that? You're bowing to your the ultimate possibilities of the highest happiness that you eventually can attain. And that is sacred, that's holy, that's worth bowing to. There's no questioning of that. It's an internal 
ultimate aspiration. We don't always know what that ultimate thing is, but we know it's up there and out there. As aspects of our life unfold and we encounter more richness and qualities, our faith in this increases. We don't know the truth of the whole path, but from what we have tasted, we have confirmed the truth of some aspect of the path in that any moment of increased richness and well-being that we get is a confirmation. And our faith in the whole process grows. Having words like, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, may my family be well, happy, and peaceful, etc., are not good enough. Uh, we act to you go back to your families, your friends, your jobs, and you have to actually produce this loving kindness And that's when it is a blessing to take care of your family. From loving kindness, it's a blessing. It talks about relatives in need. It's an interesting idea that relatives in need are a blessing. When you have loving kindness, it's a blessing. When you don't, it's a nuisance. So these blessings, this Mangala Sutta is so woven into loving kindness loving kindness is woven into that because essentially what we're talking is not loving kindness but profound friendship with yourself the first blessings are with yourself to bless yourself by turning away from folly and towards wisdom and honoring something some high ultimate aspiration and to bring it into your the reality of your life the people and situations you actually deal with, because this is no good if this stays theoretical, it's that it's, it's removed. It has to be brought in and sanctify your experience with other beings. So the blessings uh, scale up, and eventually you're urged to find the blessings of going off to talk Dhamma and to listen to Dhamma. And you're only listening to Dhamma when you internalize it and you investigate it and you question it. There are various what we call paramis or perfections of character, and one of them is wisdom. And how do you become wise? What is the cause for the arising of wisdom? In the Buddhist tradition, everything has causes. So it's not something that just it's mysteriously bestowed upon you. So what you're really interested in, anytime you want something, find out, well, how do you get it? (laughs) How do you get wisdom? And the cause of wisdom is asking questions. Questions are just a form of investigation. And quite often the question is asked to oneself. This is also what we call one of the factors of enlightenment. It's the second factor of enlightenment. Dhamma vichaya. And that is asking questions. Sometimes translated as investigating dhamma. What else is investigation but questioning? Questioning dhamma, questioning, questioning. Asking others, reading about it. Asking yourself, trying to come up with questions and answers. And also one of the processes of dhamma vichaya, notice it's associated also with mindfulness and other factors 
including tranquility, pasari. And uh, that's one of the ways of answering the question is, it's not always a linear process of answering the question. Sometimes it's posing the question and just realizing one of the best ways to get answers is to wait. And to wait in silence. And quite often this excessive activity of the mind that prevents the answers from arising. That's one of the tactics for overcoming doubt. The first tactic is stop thinking about it. Become peaceful and see what happens. Does it dissolve? Do you solve it? Or do you dissolve it? This questioning process and the inquiry process is also associated with the value and benefit of mindfulness and also tranquility and ease. The best thinking we'll ever do is in repose, in peace, in tranquility. Answers come to us that way. And every time that we do that, we're also associating with the wise, associating with wisdom itself, actually. And we're not associating with the foolish, because the foolish is to be frantically trying to answer questions when sometimes it's necessary to just wait and abide. And the answer, of course, is also aided by goodwill, If you're trying to answer questions about yourself, and if the question itself is contaminated with ill will, you already have a, you're thinking, how can I get out from under this less than perfect person that I am with all my flaws? Maybe it's the wrong question. (laughs) It's too much in the direction of the negative. It's not one of the best solutions for the removal of any of those negative things, they're not well removed through increase of unwise attention to the fault. So it's unwise attention to the fault is contaminating your thinking. What is the solution to unwise attention to the fault? By the way, that's the root cause of anger and ill will. What's the opposite of that? Goodwill. Then unwise attention to the fault collapses. What arises? The opposite, what is called yoniso anasikara, wise attention. Or we could translate it as mind doings. Manasikara means mind doing. <laughs> Activities of the mind which go to the source and to the genuine source when hostility is absent. So you're a much better thinker when you have loving kindness the beginning of any situation you have, you've got to ask yourself, before I start on this, do I have a mind of loving kindness? And then my th- the solutions I come to will not be contaminated. They'll be much different than I would if I was trying to think with a mind of negativity. This, by the way, is also an injunction towards monks when they correct each other. The Buddha says, before you correct another monk, you have to ask yourself, do I speak with a heart of loving kindness? Because you will speak differently. (laughs) You will say it differently. You might even decide not to say it. So that before you address the fault of another monk, make sure that you have purified your own mind through loving kindness. 
the same advice for yourself before you address your own faults. Correct yourself. Do you speak? Do you think with a heart of loving kindness? And then do you speak in accord with the facts? Or are you distorting things, exaggerating things? This also, you can't really speak in accordance with the facts. It's hard to speak truth without a good heart. With hostility, you can address certain things, but afterwards, quite often, you think, that wasn't quite true. So there's a saying, speak in anger, you will make the best speech you ever regretted. (laughs) Because anger also is a parallel to intelligence. Anger has something in common with intelligence. And one of the things about intelligence is the capacity to sustain attention on a subject. This is why certain kids in the class in grade three get A's and the other ones don't because the ADD, (laughs) the inability to sustain attention for any length of time, distinguishes you as not going to get A's. It's a beautiful thing. Intelligence is a beautiful thing, and it's a form of attention. It's sustained attention. But unfortunately, anger has those that in common as well. It sustains attention on a fault. So it examines and amplifies and dwells on a fault, unfortunately, without the wider picture, which is this sampajanya, the overarching awareness of the whole picture. So it isolates a fault. I'm interested in uh, brain function, so I think it's left brain that does the anger. (laughs) It fails to see the larger picture. It fails to see things in proportion. You know how it is. You get things out of proportion. So this is all mixed in with wisdom and goodwill and development are all inseparable. They're intertwined. And ill will and your decline is also inseparable. By the cultivation of ill will, you will decline. You will fall in with the wrong company in your mind, even if you're alone. If you're in solitary confinement, you will fall in with the wrong company if you practice ill will. But if you're in solitary confinement and you practice goodwill, you will associate with the wise And you will improve, you will develop. And if you do not do this, you will decline. You will lose your concentration. You can be good at things, but if uh, you're not careful and negative emotions come up, you will actually decline in your basic skills, inability to sustain attention, inability to be wholehearted about things. It takes away your vital energy, your life energy. When you're lighthearted, full of love, you will also find uh, energy is inseparable from that. And full commitment is also inseparable from that. You can commit yourself to things because you're one person. The negative energy divides you. You cannot be wholehearted about things. Part of you is removed. Part of you doesn't want to be there, in fact. Sometimes if we're in a condition of ill will, we will find ourselves nodding off. It's hard to be fully awake and angry at the same time. Anger really is so uncomfortable that 
part of the mind wants to just shut you down. <laughs> That's why depression is related to anger and why excessive sleep is also related to depression and anger because the mind is uncomfortable being conscious at that time. Whereas the opposite with loving kindness, there's a beautiful energy there. The mind is delighted to experience it. It's delight to be awake. And the opposite of depression happens. With loving kindness, there's no heaviness or sadness. One is light. And energy and joy arise. So these are all endlessly beautiful products, secondary products of this primary thing the Buddha is on and on about, this, this metta. So this is, uh, I don't know what it is, the 13th talk on metta, the 12th, the 4th, the 20th, the <laughs> 12th, 12th talk, okay. So I think I set the Guinness Book of World Records of metta talks. But I'm surprised I probably could go on for another dozen or so. I didn't know it when I started whether how much material, but I feel like I've hardly scraped the surface. But it really intertwines. It's a very, it's just a vine that grows all through the Eightfold Path and all the Dhamma teachings and shouldn't be thought of as some sort of separate element to it.